found that, would you stand together with me in honor of God's word, and I will read together our passage. When I'm finished, I'll say, this is God's word, and I'll ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Psalm 118 says this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me by setting me free. Some of your translations will say, by setting me into a wide place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give you thanks. You are my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us and just commit this time to God and ask him to speak to us through his word now. Spirit of God, we come to you and commit this time now in your word to you. We invite you to come and uh, speak through this word specifically to our hearts. I don't know each situation here, but I know that you know each one in here. You, you, you say that uh, we are all open and laid bare before you. And so I trust that you will take this word that you have uh, spoken deeply into my heart this week and use it to minister now to your people as we gather here together to, to learn from it. You tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, while I don't claim at all to be a, a board games guy, 
I enjoy the occasional board game, but I'm not like a board games guy. We, we know people like that, and, and God bless them. But one of the games that I remember playing uh, a lot, like for hours, uh, growing up and years past with my brother, and also my brother-in-law is here today, is a game called Risk. Who's played Risk before? Okay, good, a lot of people. All right. So, as the, the game tells us, as the box says, Risk is a game of diplomacy, of conflict, and of world domination. All for two to six players. And uh, it's actually gone on, apparently, to become one of the best-selling board games in history. Uh, lots of other games have built uh, off this idea of the game. And if you've seen it, the, the game board itself is actually a political world map that's depicting uh, six countries, all divided into 42 territories. And the idea is that at the end of the game, you want your armies to occupy every one of the territories. Simple enough. But... Those of you who have played this game before, you already know that one of the hardest countries traditionally to hold on to is what? Europe. Europe. Why? Well, because look, it's got so many connected borders, places of attack that can come from all different sides. It's way harder to defend because so many different people can attack you. And so this, of course, is where your diplomacy skills come in. Because hopefully what you can do is call on your allied forces to come in and help you in your hour of need so that hopefully your European Union isn't just wiped off the map completely. And thinking of this idea of military conquest and world domination, if you know much of the history of World War II, you know that that was very much the case for one particular European country when war with Nazi Germany became inevitable in 1939, France. France, uh, of course, France and Britain were the first ones to declare war on Germany. And yet, if you look, these guys don't have it very good because two of the Axis powers, Germany and Italy, have connected borders to France, direct access to them. And then on the left side here, Western borders, they've got nothing but Atlantic Ocean to retreat to. So you don't need to be a military expert to know that's probably not going to end well for them. Probably not going to go well, unless... Unless you have allies that you can call on in your hour of desperate need. And of course, that's eventually what happened. France reaches out. They're like, help us. And the, the big four of what is now known as our United Nations. We had Britain. We had the U.S. We had China. We had Russia. They, they came to France's aid and, and along with numerous other allied forces, eventually helped win a victory against the Axis powers in a conflict that otherwise promised certain defeat. And if you travel through France today, you, you'll see numerous memorials built in honor of and expressing gratitude for the men and women who gave their lives in response to that call for help. Now, most of us here today, we don't, we don't have an idea, we don't have any concept for what living under that kind of threat looks like, and that's, that's a great thing. And yet, if you look at our passage today from Psalm 118, it seems that King David, who, who many scholars believe is the unlisted author of this psalm, he absolutely understood what that feels like, both to live under the threat of death as well as what it feels like to be delivered from that threat as he cried out for help, in his case, to God. And as we just clearly heard as we read through this psalm, all of Psalm 118 is really David offering up his thanksgiving to God for that deliverance that he was given when he had no help, no, no possibility of escape otherwise. 
God came to his aid. He answered him and came, and David offers up his thanksgiving throughout. Well, we're continuing this uh, summer teaching series through the book of Psalms entitled Every Last Key. And if you haven't been with us, what, the whole point of this series is, is we are digging into the Psalms and looking at the transforming reality revealed there that the God who made us, the God who formed us, is interested in, uh, wants to speak new life into every part of us, all of us, not just those parts of us that we feel are presentable to him, all of it. That, that again, if you were to picture your life as a house, God wants to be given the, the key. He wants to be invited into every last room. And we've looked at a number of things through this series already as, as it relates to giving God every last key. And some of the things have seemed obvious. Uh, uh, God wants us to bring him our trust. God wants us to bring him our confession. That seems pretty obvious. Other times, some of the things that maybe not seem so obvious. God wants us to bring him our feelings of envy. Not quite so obvious. And yet, when it comes to something like this, Thanksgiving. I think most of us are probably going to be likely putting it over in the obvious category. Of course. Give thanksgiving to God, sure. And yet, when you consider what David writes here in Psalm 118, and you look at what he's saying and how he's saying it and who he's saying it to, I think what it reveals, very sadly, is that one of the things the majority of us also don't share with David is his regular attitude and expression of thanksgiving to God. We don't share that with him as regularly and as passionately and as focused in a way as David does here. And as a result, I believe we, we miss out on many of the blessings that David gained through his regular practice of thanksgiving. But why not? Why, why don't we do it? Why would we not bring our thanksgiving regularly to God? Well, I think there could be any number of reasons for that. Two, I think, really big ones that, that come up in my mind when I think about it are pride and a scarcity mindset. Those two things, pride, that is, I don't see the need for thankfulness because, listen, I worked hard. I fought hard for this victory myself. Why would I give thanks to God for that? I did it. And then on the other side, and I think this is probably even more prevalent, is this idea of a scarcity mindset where we're so used to comparing what we have to what everybody else has around us. We feel like, why would I give thanks to God when I have so much less than everybody else has? Yeah, I'd thank him if I had as much as... Johnny did on his Instagram page, but I don't. So why would I thank God right now? I've got so little. In her book, Daring Greatly, researcher and author Brene Brown writes this, scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper-aware of lack. Everything from safety and love to money and resources feels restricted or lacking. We spend inordinate amount of times calculating how much we have, want, and don't have, and how much everyone else has, needs, and wants. And as a result, uh, according to Brown, everyone has some version of this sentence in their mind, never blank enough. We've all got one of those sentences in our mind, never good enough, never wealthy enough, never fit enough, never safe enough, never whatever it is. There's some sense of lack that we feel constantly. And as a result, I, because of either one of these things, pride or scarcity mindset, we miss both the reason for thankfulness as well as the, the, the truly transforming power of regularly practicing it. And so, what I believe the Spirit of God wants to reveal to us today in this passage that we're looking through is two things. The humility of thanksgiving, and then the recognition of thanksgiving. Just those two things. The humility 
and the recognition of thanksgiving. So if you have closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that psalm? Just keep that in front of you. Follow along with me as we learn now together how it is that, that God wants us to bring him our thanksgiving. So let's look first of all at the humility of thanksgiving. The humility of thanksgiving. Now the simple point I want to try to prove from this psalm, first of all, is that thanksgiving by its very nature is both opposed to pride as well as a remedy for being prideful. Because if you remember what I said a moment ago, one of the reasons we don't have this attitude and practice regularly of giving thanks to God and we miss out on the blessing of it is because of our pride. That's, that's one of the things that continues to hinder our thanksgiving to God. And so we, we, we don't offer it because of this, this pride. And so uh, this looks all kinds of different ways. If you want to have some examples of what that could look like in, in Bible times, maybe you remember some of these stories where kings would look out over their kingdoms and kind of just take all the credit for themselves. They'd look over the kingdom and say, look at this amazing kingdom that I've built for myself with my own power and by my own hand. Or in our day and age, uh, it would look like just kind of enlightenment era thinking that would say things like scientific discovery, human reason has, we've pretty much moved beyond the need for even a concept like God. So why would we bother to give thanks? I, I, don't, I don't need God. I, we, we've kind of moved beyond that, haven't we? And in the end, what happens is we end up taking credit for stuff that God's actually done. In uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul says it doesn't matter what day it is. Refusing to give God glory, refusing to give God thanks is to become foolish in our thinking and to worship created things, which would include our own selves, rather than the creator who is forever blessed. But hear me, listen, this isn't at all to say that we're never thankful. It's not saying that we never say thank you. I'd like to think that years of having our parents say, now what do you say? Every time someone gave you something, I think we're probably pretty good at, you know, being thankful, generally speaking. What I mean is that our thankfulness often stops there. Our thankfulness does not extend and, and go beyond human gifts up to the God who Jesus' half-brother James says is the giver of all good gifts. We, we, we stop out at just thanking those around us. And yet, in the exact opposite direction of that prideful forgetfulness of God, what we see right from the very first verse, look at verse one of this psalm, right from the first verse, and then including down to the very end, David begins and ends this psalm with these words where he says, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to him because he's good. Utilizing a, a literary device called inclusio or, or bracketing where you begin and end with the same thing and then the understanding is that everything in between those two brackets is going to be talking about that same theme. In this case, giving thanks to the Lord. And when you read through the, the 27 verses in between those two brackets, you see that's absolutely the case. I mean, there's hardly a, a, a statement of victory or deliverance or success that David brings that does not attribute all of that to God. All of it, he says, the Lord did it, or the Lord did, helped me, the Lord did these things. And of course, we look at that and we're like, well, dude, it's the Bible. Of course he's going to thank God. That's, that's what they do in the Bible. Uh, they, they just say, yeah, God did everything. And yet, if you know the course of David's life, which we just spent months going through in our series through First and Second Samuel, I think, humanly speaking, that's not an obvious conclusion at all. 
Because think about it. If you look, for instance, at verse 5 in our passage here, David speaks about crying out for deliverance and his anguish. Uh, uh, verses uh, 10 through 12, he, he describes swarming armies that circled around him on every side like bees. Verse 13, he talks about being pushed back and about to fall, which, of course, is actually statements that France probably could have made in World War II. And in each and every instance, David gives thanks. He gives credits to the Lord for delivering him. Okay, so far so good. And yet when you look at the accounts that likely coincide with what David says here in First and Second Samuel, uh, his friends, um, his mighty men, different rulers, on and on. Those are the people that actually delivered him. Those are the ones that, that, that helped him get out. Those are the ones that got him out of trouble when he was, not to mention the fact that David himself, he was a skilled warrior from a young age. He's the one that defeated Goliath. So why, why would David give credit, all the credit, really, and thanks to God here in Psalm 118 when, when numerous others, including himself, had clearly been the ones who brought about the deliverance? Why is he giving all the credit to God? That'd be like Denzel getting up to receive an Oscar for Best Actor and just coming up and saying, I want to thank God. And then just grab the statue and walk off. Everyone would be like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. I mean, okay, great, sure, thank God, good. But like, there's a lot of other people involved in that movie that you're taking credit for there, not to mention you acted in it. Why, why are you giving just the credit to God? So why, what is David doing here? Why, why is he giving credit alone to God when clearly others have been involved in his deliverance? And I think the simple answer is that what's happening in Psalm 118 is that David is not teaching us a pattern for how to express thanksgiving. As much as I believe, listen, he's giving us an understanding of how the sovereign hand of God works in and through every person, every event, every circumstances of our lives, including our own efforts. The sovereign hand of God working in and through everything so that our thanksgiving doesn't end internally or even horizontally, but continues to extend upwards to God to the pra give praise and glory and thanksgiving to the one who is ultimately worthy of all of our thanksgiving and praise. He's saying he's ultimately the hand behind all of it. He's the one worthy of our praise ultimately. So that's why, that's what he's showing us here by this attitude of thanksgiving that gives all the credit to God. And if you don't believe me, if you need extra proof to kind of see this is how David's operating, you don't need to look much further than a few pages back to Psalm 51. Where there, in response to his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah, David cries out to the Lord against you. And you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you want to say, um, nope, nope. Uh, I'm pretty sure Bathsheba and Uriah might have a different interpretation of that. Uh, how, how can he say that? Well, from what we're starting to learn here now about how David does this, David isn't there trying to teach about repentance. He's not saying, hey, listen, everybody, you don't need to apologize to anybody anymore. Don't ask for anybody's forgiveness. Just ask God's forgiveness and you're good. That's not what he's saying. No, what he's saying is don't stop at asking forgiveness from those people you've sinned against. Don't stop there because although your sin has undoubtedly injured them, your repentance needs to extend beyond individuals and up to the God to whom all sin ultimately offends. So do you see it now? This is why thanksgiving in general and thanksgiving directed towards God in particular is both opposed to pride as well as essential 
for creating humility. Because think about it. Just, just to actually truly thank anybody for anything beyond just kind of a surfacey uh, show of politeness, by definition, is to say, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish this thing without you. Thank you. Really thanking someone is to say, I couldn't have done it without you. So just imagine, like, how much more does that mean when we gratefully acknowledge that reality to God? God, I couldn't have, I couldn't have made it through this without you. I never would have got this job here without you. I never would have learned this thing if you hadn't shown me all these things. Thank you, God. I know your hand was in and behind all of this. How much more do we need to do that? Just stop right now and take a moment. Think of your own life. Think about the, own, the examples that, that, that you have and that you experience every day. Let it, let it open yourself up and let it really touch you. Think about it. I mean, I mean, there's an endless list of things we could put on there, right? I mean, the circumstances necessary for life on this planet. Uh, uh, where you were born. The time period you were born in. Your birth order. Your gender. The things that you happen to be gifted at so that you can actually do your job really well. The last breath you just took. Did you have a part in any one of those things? What, what did you contribute to any one of those things? And yet those things are essential for everything we do in life. And listen, I know that understanding, it, 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 it's transforming when we think about it that way. Because when we see and understand the sovereign, protective, empowering, benevolent head of God as being over every second of your life from beginning to end, you understand why David offers up this thanksgiving directly to God in spite of all the things that he's accomplished himself. When we apply this to our own lives, we see how few trophies and awards and medals we actually have. Because his hand is behind all of it. And I know, I get it. This, this is actually offensive. It's deeply offensive to hear something like that. It's provoking. Particularly if you've grown up in a culture like ours that says, Hard work and determination. You can accomplish anything you set your mind to. And it sounds like the Bible here is saying, oh, you know what? All of your accomplishments, all of your effort, that's just meaningless. But that's not at all what this is trying to say. In fact, you, you look through this psalm again, you'll see David absolutely, he, he, he claims his victories. He claims what he's accomplished. He doesn't shy back from that. And yet what's different is that he presents those accomplishments with the humble thanksgiving that acknowledges that on his own, he wouldn't have been able to accomplish a single one of them. That's the difference, you see. Pride, pride causes you to, to resist, to, to dig in and say, why should I thank God for this? I did it, me. Thankfulness, thanksgiving is simply humbling, humbly acknowledging what the Apostle Paul said when he said, I am what I am only by the grace of God. And also agreeing with what Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, that's the humility of thanksgiving, the, the pride-killing remedy found in the regular practice of offering our thanksgiving to God. The last thing I want to look at, you, look at together with you quickly here is the recognition of thanksgiving. The recognition of thanksgiving. And I want to look at this together with you because this is where I believe Psalm 118 actually helps us 
It helps to free us from that scarcity mindset. The other thing that restricts us from bringing our thanksgiving to God, again, as Brene Brown describes it, it's basically where every look around you leaves you with the impression you don't have as much as the next person, and therefore, you have nothing to be thankful for. But I absolutely love what she goes on to say in the, when she concludes this. She says, listen, for me, the opposite of scarcity is not abundance, but enough. I'll say that again. The opposite of scarcity is not abundance, is not having more than everybody else. It is enough. Which, if you ask me, sounds very much like what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4 when he said, I have learned in whatever circumstances I am to be content. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which, listen, what that means is that the secret to overcoming the discouraging feelings of lack that rob us of joy in our lives isn't found in having more than the other guy. It's found in being content. It's found in a thankful recognition of all that I have that has come from God's hand. And a returning thanksgiving to him for those things. And you know, when you think about it, for all of David's successes, he also suffered innumerable tragedies and hardships in his life. From, from regular pursuit against him by his enemies to the betrayal and insurrection of his, his own son, Absalom. I mean, he experienced all these things. And, and honestly, David could have easily succumbed to that very same scarcity mindset of, why me himself? Why, why don't I have enough of, of what I need? And, and, and yet, despite the fact he had risen to the highest point of, of wealth and power in Israel, he still could have had the very same scarcity mindset. So it's not something that just people who aren't in power have, just people who aren't wealthy have. We can all have the same mindset. And yet, Look at this. Rather than complaining, rather than withholding his thanksgiving to God, what you see from David instead is a joyful procession to the temple, the meeting place between God and man. That's what he's referring to there in verses 19 and 20 about the gates of righteousness. And then in verses 2 to 4, calling everyone, everyone who will listen, people of Israel, come with me to offer thanksgiving. A house of Aaron, the, the priestly class, join me in thanksgiving. Those who fear God, Gentiles, all those who have come to take on the God of Israel as theirs, come with me to bring our thanksgiving to God. Come along with me and do this. Why? Well, I believe it was because what David had discovered very early on in his life was that remembering with thanksgiving the faithfulness of God to us in the past allows us to approach God with thanksgiving in the present, despite whatever difficulties or apparent lack you may be facing. Remembering with thanksgiving how God had heard him when he cried out in anguish. Remembering with thanksgiving how God had delivered him from the swarming armies that, that came around him, that he cut them off in the name of the Lord. Remembering how he'd been pushed back and nearly lost his life and how God had helped him. That's what allowed him to go to God with thanksgiving in the midst of present difficulties. Where you see there in verse 18, he says, God had severely chastened him. He felt the, God, the, the, the hand of God's discipline heavy upon him. But do you see, by remembering with thanksgiving the faithfulness of God to him in the past, 
David could come to God under his present discipline and say, God, I don't understand why you're allowing me to go through this, why you're putting putting me through this, but I can give you thanks all the same because I've seen your faithfulness to deliver me in the past from threats, from difficulties, from struggles, and I didn't understand what was going on then either. So maybe, maybe I can trust you here. Maybe I can give you thanks even now in this when I still don't understand. In her book, 1,000 Gifts, Anne Boskamp writes this. She says, no amount of regret changes the past and no amount of anxiety changes the future, but any amount of gratitude changes the present. I think that's true. Which means that Thanksgiving, listen, is not something, if you believe that, that you're going to start tomorrow and be awesome at. It isn't. You're not just going to say, I'm going to be right, I should be thankful, and just start. Thanksgiving is, is both a practiced action as well as a practiced perspective that you need to do regularly, over and over, in order for it to become a regular pattern of what you do, like we see David doing here. When you consider this in your own life, when you look back at your life, think about it. How many examples do you have? How many examples do you have of God's loving faithfulness to you? What Psalm 118 is showing you is that the more you reflect back on those things, Kent talked last week about keeping a record of of the praises, the things that people have said, hey, you are enough, you are worthy. What about keeping a record of the faithfulness of God to us? always reflect back on so that the more you reflect back on those moments with thanksgiving the more it enables you to give thanks to God in the present no matter what difficulties you're facing because see our sense of scarcity our sense of lack causes us to fear causes us to doubt causes us to lose hope bringing your thanksgiving to God reminds you of his faithfulness and shines the light of hope into that darkness so that just as we sang this morning and I pray you could truly sing that from your heart we could actually pray at the start and every and end of every day god thank you for the scars i bear thank you for that season of loneliness without a friend thank you for that diagnosis thank you for that struggle thank you for that depression thank you for that loss thank you for this struggle i'm having with my kids whatever it is we could say thank you we could actually pray that way to God, and I could say thank you, not because I understand what you're accomplishing right now in my life through this, but because I've seen how you've helped in the past. I've seen how you've delivered in the past, and so that gives me faith now to trust you with this thing that I can't understand in the present. Don't you see? When, when you couple this with what we just learned before about the sovereign, loving, benevolent hand of God presiding over all things in your life, what we see is that bringing God your thanksgiving doesn't just free you from pride. It also frees you to trust. And maybe you're trying to think of examples right now in your mind of God's faithfulness to you, and maybe, you, maybe you're struggling to come up with something. Maybe you're struggling to come up with something. Maybe you've got some examples, but maybe something that's really significant enough that could actually help you to offer God thanksgiving right now in the midst of a present struggle. One of the best news of all is that all of us, every single person here today, we all share one common unparalleled example of this 
in the message of the gospel. We all share the same example, at least one, that when I stood helpless and guilty before the just wrath of God against my rebellion and sin, he answered my call for help. He delivered me by sending his perfect substitute, his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty for my sin in his death on the cross. That's an example of steadfast love and faithfulness that will truly endure for all time. And in fact, a deeper study of Psalm 118 reveals that this coming of Jesus, God's promised rescuer, is actually exactly what this psalm is pointing us towards. Because if you didn't know, Psalm 118 is part of a collection of six psalms, all read in celebration of the Passover. They were called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, remembering with thanksgiving God's deliverance from his people in slavery in Egypt. And in fact, there's, there's lines in this psalm directly from the song of Moses that he sung after they had just crossed the Red, Red Sea. You are my strength and my song. You have become my salvation. That's exactly what Moses prayed. And so these psalms were, were read as part of the celebration of Passover that they celebrated each year. This very psalm would have likely been read by Christ himself. Just as he celebrated the Passover with his disciples just before he went to the cross. Where he gave thanks. And he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And if you know the story of Jesus' life well, you might remember that just before his body was broken, just before he was rejected and beaten and nailed to a Roman cross as our Passover lamb, Jesus entered into Jerusalem to the exact words of this psalm. Psalm 25, uh, Psalm, uh, verse 25, O Lord, save us. The, the Hebrew word for that is Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That's what we read every Palm Sunday when we celebrate Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem in order to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And yet unlike David, when Jesus cried out in anguish from the cross, he heard nothing but silence from heaven. Rather than being delivered, Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. For as the prophet Isaiah tells us, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. But after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And what the scriptures tell us as well is that when Jesus breathed his laugh and last and offered up his spirit to God, the curtain in the temple, the thing that separated a sinful mankind from the holy presence of God was torn in two from top to bottom. Which means that that barrier was taken away. It means in Jesus coming to earth and, and giving up his right to be delivered, Jesus, what he was doing was opening up those gates of righteousness that David's talking about here in the psalm. He was opening them up for all time so that by faith in him, we could enter into the very presence of God and offer him our thanksgiving. We can do that now. It's because he's opened the gates by his death. This, this Jesus, this one who offered up his life in your place, this one who opened the gates of righteousness so that we can now freely enter into the presence of God, he is 
He is the stone that the builders rejected. And as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he became the capstone. He became the chief cornerstone because he suffered, because he died. He was exalted to the highest place. In fact, a number of places in the gospel, Jesus quotes verse 22 himself to the Pharisees. He says, haven't you read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying, yeah, that's me. That's talking about me. This was God's loving plan to deliver us from the beginning. From the moment we rebelled against him and became slaves to sin all the way back at the beginning, so that for those who put their trust in him and received that access once again into the presence of God by faith, it would become something we could always look back on with thanksgiving. It truly is marvelous in our eyes and is worthy of our endless hallelujah. We will now sing for all time because of what he did. Bring your thanksgiving to God. Bring him your thanksgiving regardless of your circumstance today, regardless of your sense of lack you may be feeling today. For he is good. He is good. And his death and resurrection in our place is the proof. It is the reality of that that we can always look as the chief example for all time. It is the enduring example of his love for you. Amen.